We're finishing 1 Samuel chapter 15 this morning. If you want to turn there. I sat down three weeks ago with every intention of actually going from the end of 14 through the end of 15. And it just seems like every Sunday I started studying and, well, I kind of want to unpack that. Well, I really want to unpack that. Well, I... So anyways, I hope I do actually end chapter 15, even though it's written down, you never know. But um, and I actually have been struggling, struggling a lot this week over this text. You know, Christy, Bonnie and the kids went to Lewiston on Wednesday. And so I had a about a day to think about and attack my sermon. And I didn't finish my sermon on Wednesday. And I think the reason is haunting because I think I identify so much with Saul maybe it's just kind of seeing it on paper scares me and it's haunting because what we see in our passage is what happens when sin wins and it's how sin can win in somebody's life and last week we read in this same chapter of of 1 Samuel 15 that God was grieved and Samuel agonized all night about the leadership of the kingdom of Israel, about King Saul. And Saul had really big time twice, maybe even more little times, but twice big time messed up when it came to sacrifices. And one occasion he did the sacrifice himself when Samuel should do it. And in the next occasion, though he was told to devote everything to destruction and war, he withheld the king he was warring against, and he withheld some animals to do in a sacrifice later. And I would say in both occasions, it wasn't really about the particulars of the sacrifice. That was disobedient. It was just that. His lack of obedience was the bigger problem. His lack of paying attention. And furthermore, as we've studied, it appears that his heart was never in the right place. It was always about the army. It was always about Saul's way. And it was never about a sincere love of God or a desire to follow his ways. Samuel, where we finished last week, has just confronted uh, Saul And so now it seems at first glance, as we pick up in verse 24, it seems that Saul seems to be apologizing. I don't know if I can say seems one more time in that sentence. (laughs) But let's just finish this interesting exchange here. And please stand, if you can, in honor of reading uh, the Lord's Word and hearing it together. We'll be reading verses 24 of chapter 15 through the end of the chapter. Saul answered Samuel, I have sinned, I have transgressed the Lord's command and your words, because I was afraid of the people, I obeyed them. Now therefore, please forgive my sin and return with me so I can worship the Lord. Samuel replied to Saul, I will not return with you, because you rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. When Samuel turned to go, Saul grabbed the corner of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom, the kingship of Israel away from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Furthermore, the eternal one of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not man who changes his mind. 
Saul said, I have sinned. Please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so I can bow and worship to the Lord your God. Then Samuel went back following Saul and Saul bowed down to the Lord. Samuel said, bring me King Agag of Amalek. Agag came to him trembling for he thought certainly the bitterness of death has come. Samuel declared, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother will be childless among women. Then he hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Even to, this, even to the day of his death, Samuel never saw Saul again. Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted he had made Saul king over Israel. Father, your word never seems to sugarcoat things. But rather, what we see is the reality of how people sometimes are. And Father, um, we think especially of Old Testament times, besides of how Samuel is acting here, but also we think about the whole sacrificial system and how bloody and violent it was. It seems like you're trying to get our attention. And you are. And so we pray that as we study this together, that the emotions it brings out in us will be appropriate emotions and the reactions and responses we have will be the appropriate ones that you would have from us. Father, may it lead to repentance and may we become more like Jesus because all of it. Father, have your way in our time together. May you be the one speaking and not I. Father, we love you and we thank you. And we ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever been lousy at repenting? I hope it's not with every sin. Because the bottom line is, is we need to repent. It's dire and necessary that we repent. Saul was not repenting. Saul should have listened to God completely. Saul, Samuel had told him, God wants you to completely destroy everything and spare nothing. But Saul spared the king of the Amalekites and some animals, quote, in order to offer a sacrifice. We talked about this last week that his motivations were wrong. And that's basically what Samuel said. Put in my own pathetic paraphrase. Who cares about the sacrifice? You didn't obey God. Who cares about God getting a choice meal? You didn't pay attention to him. And so here finally we get a confession, an expression of sorrow from Saul. Verses 24 through 26 again. Saul answered Samuel, I have sinned. I have transgressed the Lord's command in your words because I was afraid of the people. I obeyed them. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin and return with me so I can worship the Lord. Samuel replied to Saul, I will not return with you because you rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Now, perhaps I'm going to be too hard on Saul here. But I should preface my comments with the fact 
that the rest of the book of 1 Samuel is very telling on who Saul is. Not to mention that we just read in verse 26 that Samuel's not buying it. He was there, we're not. (laughs) Secondarily, I preface my attack on Saul's words with this. I really relate to Saul. (laughs) I really relate to him. Saul's words from the outside looking in look like a confession. They sound like a confession. But I want to ask you, have you ever seen or heard a confession that was just words and not a confession? Saul's doing two things here. He's parroting and he's blame shifting. And I, and I hate to say this because there have been some times when public figures have been symbolically crucified for some wrong, some moral failing that they've done, and they will issue public apologies and people will do nothing but dismantle and blow those apologies to bits. And sometimes I want to play devil's advocate. I want to be a little bit more compassionate and I'll give it more thought and say, well, gee, even if that person wanted to issue any genuine, sincere apology, we'd never know it. (laughs) Because everybody has already decided that they're not apologizing at all. And they deserve the proverbial death penalty. But then here I am about to do this to Saul. (laughs) And I think the weight of Scripture even testifies to two things here. Saul's really acting how I'm about to describe it all, or his is a worldly repentance and not a godly one. It's short-lived if there's any guilt at all. He's parroting and blame-shifting. He's saying the exact same things that Saul said because by this point in Saul's life, he already knows that he's been told he's lost the kingdom. Two chapters ago, we heard of Samuel's first statement to him where he said, But now your reign will not endure. The Lord has found a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not done what the Lord commanded. Saul had not responded to this in any sort of obedient way. I've suggested that his actions seemed to be trying to prove Samuel and then by extension God wrong. That, hey, I'm still king material. (laughs) So when Samuel gives him the lecture, you're not obedient to God and you're not paying attention to what he says, how convenient that Saul parrots what Samuel says. And you could say that maybe it's to show Samuel that, hey, I'm listening. Or maybe it's to, to say that Saul is saying exactly what he thinks Samuel wants to hear. Because then he blame shifts. First he says, yeah, fine, Samuel, I'm wrong and at fault as far as the Lord's word and as your words were concerned. But I was afraid of the people. (laughs) I obeyed them. Now, you can say Saul is giving an accurate account of the events. (laughs) But I, I think we like saying things like that because we like being victims and sharing and shifting the blame. Because think about this. Afraid of the people. Saul's the king. (laughs) He's the king. God, Yahweh, gave the king orders. And the person who literally should have the most power in the kingdom only needed to carry out those orders. The the fear of mankind is a snare, says Proverbs 29-25. But the one who trusts in the Lord is protected. You and I do the same thing. 
I disobeyed you, God. However, these other folks have sins like me, and it's kind of a cultural problem right now, and it's a shared addiction. There's support groups. Well, yes, I'm at fault, but it's been a stressful time, God, and we excuse, we justify, we minimize, we blame shift. It was that woman you gave me, Eve. (laughs) It was the Israelite people you gave me to wander around in the desert with. They're getting under my skin. And other people, involved or not, God's always interested in you and your responsibility, isn't He? When Calvin smacks Landon, or takes a toy away from Landon, huh, it's interesting information that Landon hit him or took his toy first, but I still hold Calvin responsible for his actions, don't I? Because he should have had control over his actions. God holds me accountable for my actions. Sure, others could have played a part in it, but at the end of the day, what I was responsible for, I was responsible for. And I had a choice to not do what I did. The Lord has rejected Saul. Samuel's not having any of Saul's words. We read again in verse 27. When Samuel turned to go, Saul grabbed the corner of his robe and it tore. So some wonder here, I'm sure there's entire classes on this in Bible college. I don't know. But if, if this is submission, that maybe Saul's clinging to Samuel's coat out of desperation, or it could be anger. That Saul, King Saul of Israel, is holding his pesky advisor's coat up by the cuff because no one talks to the king that way. We're not told in what manner that Saul is doing this here, but I think it's a little bit of the former out of desperation and submission since uh, Saul seems to be a people pleaser and he wants Samuel so badly to be gracious to him. However he's doing it, we read that Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingship of Israel away from you today. Now, today in Hebrew is actually kind of a legal term. It's full. It's final. It's in full effect. The verdict is handed down. Things are set in motion. He's taken it from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Now, We happen to find ourselves in a culture that hands out honorable mentions for kids who put up a piece of cardboard but no work whatsoever at science fairs. Oh, yeah, you got a piece of cardboard on a table. Good job. Let's mention you. And we live in a world where there should be no first, second, or third place winners because everybody is a winner. There's even some places where middle schools and high school sport games, they don't keep scores because, heaven forbid, we have competitions. And everyone's just fine and dandy the way they are. Meanwhile, the God of the universe who made Samuel, Saul, and David, and who Samuel's referring to here, says to Saul, there is someone better than you, Saul, who can lead the kingdom. What does God mean by better? Better. (laughs) And I think people hear criticisms as judgments. And people hear judgments as final labels when people should hear such things as challenges and invitations you know what would be a great ending for Saul in my mind retire in peace work on his problems become a great follower of Yahweh even if he's never king again it would still speak volumes for the followers who might be loyal to him he would be a great pre-John the Baptist I must decrease David must increase 
I, the rejected king, must yield and submit, and God's man for the hour must take up the crown. Furthermore, says Samuel, the eternal one of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man who changes his mind. In other words, Samuel could be saying here, Saul, any attempts by you to try and impress me or impress God, it's futile. There is absolutely nothing in the entire world you could ever do for God to change back his mind about his verdict on your kingdom. Absolutely nothing. He did not lie when he told you that your kingdom is rejected and he will not change his mind concerning his verdict on your kingdom. Now, some of you, like me, like I told you, I'm Saul, we're trying too hard. We're just trying too hard. When the reality is this, we must decrease, Jesus must increase. This is going to sound really weird. Sin wins when you try too hard. Sin wins when you try too hard. That was the Pharisees' problem, wasn't it? Trying too hard to be holy when it's this simple. As sinful people, believe it or not, we don't have a frame of reference for really what holiness is. So how are we going to look down into ourselves and try to be holy? This is why Saul is trying out his own holiness instead of following holiness from God. God's issuing simple commands on what to do in Saul's situation. Destroy everything, spare nothing. Meanwhile, Saul, in his attempts to be holy, ignores God because he thinks he can out-holy the Lord of holiness himself. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, destroy everything. Well, I'm going to one-up you with my awesome sacrifice that I have planned. That's not how it works. (laughs) Saul's trying too hard. When what needs to happen is Saul, is you, is I, we need to lose our lives for the sake of Christ and His Gospel. We need to lose our lives to find it. Jesus bids me come and die to find that I may truly live. Sin wins when you try too hard. At the heart of sin is me. And trying hard still makes it about me. God says it's about Him. It's about obedience. It's about yieldedness to Him. As your pastor, this is me saying to you, you have my permission to stop trying so hard. (laughs) Don't pull a Saul. Yield to God. Saul's trying too hard when the declaration has been so loud and clear. You are rejected. The kingdom is over. And even though these words are loud and clear... It's sad as we really see the willful ignorance of Saul here. We can't blame him. At least I can't blame him. Because I would probably do the same thing in his situation. Because many of us do the same thing in similar situations when we're confronted loud and clear. It's sad for me to see this as a pastor. It's sad for me to experience this when it happens to me. Whenever I am told loud and clear, Kevin, this is a sin. You're sinning when you do this. You're sinning on this road. This road's not good. It's forbidden. It needs to stop. It's dangerous to keep down this path. And it's sad whenever I choose ignorance. And I choose, yeah, well, those are just far-off implications, far-off possibilities, nothing to worry about. Saul really wants his kingdom, and guess what? He's going to keep it. It's a lousy kingdom he keeps. (laughs) 
It is a kingdom that implodes and heads into civil war as he chases David around Israel. What a great administration. What a glorious time. He's keeping his sin at what cost? Some people like me are Saul's. And if you're like Saul, and if you've been told loud and clear, this needs to stop, don't do it anymore. Figure it out, how to repent, seek all the help you need, take the drastic measures you need to make this stop for once and all. Don't coward your way out by means of forsaking the faith or running away or ending your life. Confront the problem and make it stop. (laughs) Deal with that. How many of us are like Saul and we ignore it? And what a great thing that does for us. Then we get to live with our sin and slowly self-destruct. Have you met these families? Some years ago, I watched a TV series that I really wouldn't encourage you to watch it. (laughs) It was called The Kennedys. It was about the John Kennedy family. And like John F., his dad Joe was a well-known womanizer. I don't know how real this was a depiction of, but the show depicted Joe openly bringing women home into his house and the wife just making way, letting him have his way. Now, no doubt this might have been the case for some families, especially where divorce was, you know, a non-option. But man, how jarring, how awkward, how strange. Perhaps Mrs. Kennedy didn't want to lose the power or the money or the position, but to just live with it. But many folks individually live with the proverbial adulterer in the house. Many families live with the proverbial adulterer in the house. He's always had a temper, we just live with it. They're always drinking, we've just learned to move around it. She's always going into debt, we've had to learn to manage it. You know, I have a feeling that God says to the sinner, don't. Don't live with it. Deal with it. You don't have to live with it. You have to deal with it. Saul had to deal with it. He should have dealt with it. But his confessions here show that he's not dealing with it. He's not yielding to God, but he's still focused on himself. Because what we're shown is confession, but what we see is really a concession. It's a concession on Saul's part to give in to his life with sin. This is his second so-called confession in verse 30. He says, I have sinned. Please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so I can bow and worship to the Lord your God. Looking at the Hebrew can be very telling here. I have sinned is just one Hebrew word. And it's the only Hebrew or the only word of confession in this confession. (laughs) But then note what really seems to be focused on in this confession, honor me before the elders of my people. Come back with me. Furthermore, some have suggested that Saul seems to be kind of a, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, Samuel. He says this, you do this. Honor me in front of everyone, and then I'll come and worship your God. <laughs> like it's a little bit of an exchange. Now, it could not, maybe not be meant like that per se, but it's, it's telling what King Saul's first concern is here, himself, and how he appears to the people. Now, what's interesting is this, verse 31, Then Samuel went back following Saul, and Saul bowed down to the Lord. Now, there is, again, debate about this. 
Did Samuel mess up here? Did he go back on his convictions? Did, did Saul win? Here's what I think, especially as we finish this chapter. It's likely that Samuel wanted to maintain peace. He didn't want the entire public of Israel to see just yet that the spiritual leadership is leaving Israel to deal with Saul alone. When Samuel kind of gave his last big address to the nation of Israel, back in chapter 12, he said, As for me, I vow that I will not sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I will teach you the good and right way. And so when it comes to Saul, maybe Samuel is taking a little bit of our evangelistic mindset. As in, well, even though he's a sinner, going to church is where sinners should be, right? And so... I missed this, this part because look at the CSB's rendering. It says, Saul bowed down to the Lord. Bowed down. That's kind of what it means. But other translations would say worshipped, which bowing down is a part of. But what happens whenever you worship in the Old Testament? A sacrifice. Perhaps they're using some of the cattle from the Amalekites that Saul and his troops were supposed to destroy. I don't know. But this worship, this sacrifice, this taking, killing, bloodletting, throwing animal on the parts of a fire is then followed by this brutal happening. In verse 32, Samuel said, bring me King Agag of Amalek. Agag came to him trembling for he thought certainly the bitterness of death has come. And if you're reading a different translation, it might say certainly the bitterness of death has passed. As in, maybe Agag said, well, Saul spared me, so certainly I'm not going to die. Or maybe, whatever's the right word here, he could be saying, they're summoning me, maybe they changed their mind, I don't know. Either way, he's trembling and he's scared, he's wondering why he's being summoned. Verse 33 says, Samuel declared, as your sword has made children, made women childless, so your mother will be childless among women. Then he hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. That's kind of violent. (laughs) Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but perhaps you forgot. The way chapter 15 reads, Samuel told Saul that the Lord wanted everything devoted to destruction, completely destroyed, men, women, children, animals. Saul spared one Amalekite, apparently King Agag. He spared the animals. Samuel is here finishing the job. God wanted all the Amalekites devoted to destruction, and if this is the last Amalekite. And if you remember, God made this declaration that the Amalekites had a day coming. He said that in Moses' time, upwards of 400 years prior. That is a long time to repent. And repent they did not. Samuel's finishing the job. But also, this is a chance for Saul to see firsthand some vivid symbols. The sacrifice for worship is always supposed to be a vivid symbol. This is what sin does. It takes life. It spills blood. The the sinner deserves to be consumed by the flames just as the animal is. This is what sin does. Then, more gruesomely, perhaps Saul had seen Samuel kill an animal before, but maybe he's never seen his spiritual leader kill a man before. The man is trembling, we're told, and I'm without saying it, can you imagine? Can you imagine me, your pastor, bringing a man to the front? Saul sees this brutally, 
Samuel even voices to the man, because of your sins, this is what's due to you. Friends, this is Saul's chance. This is Saul's chance right here. Okay, I'm faking it. (laughs) I wasn't really sorry, but now I want to (laughs) be. I see what, what sin does. You've slaughtered this animal. You've given it to the flames. You've slaughtered this unrepentant Gentile who's God's judgment been over. How can I escape judgment, Samuel? These vivid symbols mean something. Our symbol is the cross. Where Jesus was brutally beaten, plastered to, hung up by nails, and bled out on the cross. And we're supposed to see that's what sin does. That's what my sin did. It brought me, it brought Almighty God who made the heavens and the earth to the ground and in the person and work of Jesus. And He became my substitute. He became my sacrifice. He was put to the cross for my sins. He was consumed by the wrath of God on my behalf. Friends, you and I have to be cold, heartless, uncaring, and unmoving as Saul if we let that story pass us by without giving it thought. Without giving it a second for us to check ourselves and say, that's what I deserve. Instead, here's what happens. Separation. After lousy repentance, trying too hard, self-focus, and passing on by the vivid symbols, separation happens. And after this worship service and after finishing off this complete destruction that God wanted in the first place, we read this sad summary. Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Even to the day of his death, Samuel never saw Saul again. Samuel mourned for Saul and the Lord regretted he had made Saul king over Israel. Now if you want to get hung up on an apparent contradiction in chapter 19... Saul and Samuel see each other again in a chance encounter. <laughs> and the, the point of the author here is that they're not calling each other up. They're not going to each other's houses. They're not seeking each other's company. It's as if I called off a friendship with someone in Woodland and oops, four years from now I see them at the store. I would still say I didn't see them the rest of my life. This is what happens when sin wins. Saul wants nothing to do with Samuel Because it means he'll have to face what he's done. He'll have to face losing his kingdom. But instead, he chooses his sin. And before too long, we're going to find Saul's spiral. And find that Saul's kingdom is like living with an adulterer in the house and just getting by. Just living with it instead of dealing with it. It makes me wonder. It challenges me. I don't know what it does for you. But for me, I have to ask myself... What am I just living with and not dealing with? What sins have I shrugged off, dismissed? And like Saul here, sometimes I repent, but it's a lousy repentance. I just parrot what I know. The Bible says, God says, the pastor says, this is wrong. But then I blame shift. Hey, I got my reasons as to why it happens. My family history, my personality is J-E-R-K. I'm a jerk. (laughs) Whatever. And it's lousy repentance. What sins do I think I'm really holy in tackling because, man, I try so hard to stop it and oddly enough, it never stops. Like Saul, maybe I make it big and showy. I have days I put on the calendar. I have milestones and I set up waypoints and, hey, I'm going to stop. I'm going through big loops, God. And like Saul, who was worried about his reputation in front of Israel, am I self-focused? 
I'm a sinner and I can't be because I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I'm a pastor. And it's all about my reputation. That's why I need to stop sinning. You know what sin is? It's falling short of the glory of God. Saul is a man who's so interested in his own glory that he fails to sense God's glory. It's ironic, I said that while Saul was trying hard, he was trying so hard to manufacture holiness when what's sad is what God was giving him, namely his commands, was the path to holiness. And holiness is so dire that you and I have it. The author of Hebrews says that holiness, without it, no one will see the Lord. But we also know this, that if we see Jesus, we've seen the Father. And if you find yourself, and if I find myself like Saul, repenting lousily, trying hard to get holy, but my intentions in a so-called repentance are all so self-focused, God help me to come here and to be presented with the vivid symbols of the gospel. God help me that unlike Saul, I don't miss it. The amazing thing about the story of Saul is that after this first messed up, jacked up, self-infatuated, crazy, psychotic king, that Israel gets blessed with a man after God's heart named David. And David, we're told over and over in the scriptures, is a type of figure to point us to King Jesus. So in the shadow of Saul is the light of Jesus. And Jesus, as I alluded to earlier, is our vivid symbol that just as the sacrificial system was a foreshadow of Jesus and a centerfold of Israel's worship. So Jesus, Christian, Christ, Ian, is the centerfold of our worship. And where you and I fail constantly like Saul, or maybe just me, Jesus succeeds and becomes our righteousness. And where you and I sin, Jesus remains sinless. And where you and I try to fight harder and can't break the cycle, Jesus tells us to give up and give in to Him, to stop trying, but to cast our cares on Him, because His yoke is easy and His burden light. And where you and I think it's about religion and impressing God, Jesus says it's about a relationship with Him and receiving grace from God. And so today, this day, I feel it is a call to you and me to get over ourselves. To admit that perhaps we've been lousy repenters, we've been trying too hard. And for reasons of focusing on ourselves, where God is calling us to truly repent, instead of trying hard to impress Him, maybe we should just die easy to receive Him. Come to Jesus. Saul should have repented by saying, What do I do, Lord? Tell me. It's that easy. Instead of come up with a plan of attack and ignore God's words in the process. Come to Jesus. Saul should have said, what do I do, Lord? Instead of trying hard himself without asking what God wanted in the first place. Saul should have focused on God and his ways instead of his own reputation and what he had to lose. Come to Jesus. Saul should have paid attention to what the sacrifice meant in worship and why Agag died. And instead of going through the motions like we do every Sunday sometimes, thinking only about himself, come to Jesus. Instead of 
seeking God and only seeking self, Saul set up a precedent that separated himself from Samuel and separated himself from the voice of the Lord. And then went down from there. That's how sin wins. How sin loses is if it meets Jesus. Let's pray. Father, um, I don't know of any pastor who likes to open up a Bible and preach a sermon like this. But your word is unapologetic. And sometimes what you say to us, it's funny. We think it's hard, but it's so easy. Come to Jesus. What's hard about it is we have to give up ourselves because we think we're hot stuff. Or we think in our suffering and in our drowning, it needs to be all about us. But Father, in your suffering and in your drowning, you even said, Lord, take this cup from me. But God didn't. And so Jesus obeyed, not because Jesus was tough stuff, but because his father called him to. So whether we're suffering in sin or whether we're suffering in illness or whether we're on cloud nine and thinking we're pretty good people, Father, whatever the case is, may you direct our affections and may you turn our eyes upon Jesus. Father, we read a haunting, chilling warning in the story of Saul. This is how sin wins. So it's nothing light to look it over and say, well, that was Saul, it's not me. Father, we pray that today you would help us to meet with Jesus. Some of us have been trying so hard all our lives to overcome this sin. Show us practically how to just give it up and come to you. Because that's where life is found. Father, we love you. We thank you. We ask and we pray that you would use this in our lives, in the lives of those we love, and that it may be used to glorify Jesus all the more and build up his body. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.